This is episode 25 of Ripe Good Scholar, Jewish People in Elizabethan England. They needed to have the blood of a Christian handy in case they were dying and needed to, like, save themselves real quick. <laughs> because apparently they could, like, bless themselves with the Christian blood and God would be like, oh, you cool. This is James Shapiro, author of Contested Will and Shakespeare in a Divided America. And you are listening to Write Good Scholar. Welcome to Write Good Scholar with Sarah Plaskett. Sarah believes that in order to fully understand the relevance of Shakespeare's works in the 21st century, you must examine the history those plays have travelled through since Shakespeare wrote them. Ripe Good Scholar is the show that dives into the archives, theatres and museums to explore the historical evolution of Shakespeare's plays. Join us in examining when and why they were written in the first place, as well as how they have been utilised around the world since then, so that you can see for yourself how the plays continue to be as relevant today as they were in the 16th century. And now, here's Sarah. Hello, and welcome to Ripe Good Scholar. When we watch The Merchant of Venice today, we may assume that Shylock is supposed to be a sympathetic character. However, an Elizabethan audience member would not have thought the same. Today, Eli and I will be exploring the anti-Semitic misconceptions that most people in Elizabethan England would have believed. James Shapiro's book, Shakespeare and the Jews, serves as our guide to their mindset. It can be a little uncomfortable, but important to understanding the meaning behind The Merchant of Venice. If discussion of anti-Semitism bothers you, this may not be the episode for you. Feel free to skip this one and catch us next time. If you want to look at my sources and have additional reading, please head over to ripegoodscholar.com EP25. Now, let's head to Elizabethan England. Are you ready to talk about the anti-Semitism? Hooray! Oh. <laughs> as lighthearted as that opening was, this actually will be a bit of a heavier episode because I think it's important for us to understand as much as we can about Shakespeare's likely attitudes toward minorities at the time. Now, from watching and reading the plays as I have, I tend to think he had a pretty negative attitude towards most minorities. I think so, too. Um, so I think part of the reason that I want to talk about this is, one, there is a discussion going on in the Shakespeare community right now about race and Shakespeare and primarily right now Shakespeare's role in colonialism, but there is a discussion going on about whether or not like The Merchant of Venice should even be produced anymore. I understand that. I do. I get that. And, and off recording, you and I have talked about it before. However, my position is I would rather support contextualizing the beliefs than erasing them from our history. Because I think if we pretend that Shakespeare or any person from the past did not reflect the racism, anti-Semitism, sexism of their time period, we are doing a disservice to all the people that were hurt during that time. Yeah, no, I, I understand that point of view too. So that's a little bit of what I want to do today. Explore specifically Elizabethan attitudes toward Jewish people and 
concluding with how you know and and looking at how that may have colored the merchant of venice because i think that sometimes we look at the speech from merchant of venice of if you prick us do we not bleed and we think well shakespeare saw them as people and i'm like well he still had his happy ending being the jewish man converted to christianity at the end i think we forget that shylock was supposed to be the villain and i think that by exploring the prominent attitudes at the time we can better understand that mindset because i think right now it can be very hard for the majority of us to get in the mindset of an elizabethan audience member who's watching the merchant of venice and seeing an evil person because we know that all the misconceptions we are about to talk about are not true and are actually extremely hurtful stereotypes some still persist today lots of crazy ones were prominent at the time which really shouldn't be surprising because a lot of crazy ones continue today i want to start with kind of a history of the jewish people in england starting in <laughs> which is probably a bad place to start. But in 1290, Edward I decreed that every Jew must leave England's shores. Uh, for context, uh, Edward I was the bad guy in Braveheart. The exact date that this decree went into effect isn't known because the actual document has been lost. Yeah? Yeah, we, just, we don't have the actual legal like parliament role of what date that went into effect. But based on some accounts, particularly from ambassadors and other travelers at the time, we get an idea. Okay. So it's around 1290. I, I think a lot of times when we hear in expulsions, we think of like, suddenly everybody had to get up and leave their homes. And that isn't quite what happened, just because there had been a lot of laws being enacted at the time that was slowly driving that community out of England, particularly stricter usury laws. So Christians were not allowed to uh, partake in usury, which was lending money with interest. Right, because uh, there's a bit in the gospel where Jesus specifically says, if you lend someone money, don't charge interest. Just give people money because they need it. Yes, and so since Jewish people didn't believe in what Jesus had to say, they were like, hey, you know what's helpful for an economy? Lending money. With interest. So they were slowly being driven out, you know, just because it was difficult for them to maintain any sort of community. Unfortunately, this was one of the more prominent businesses for them because most people didn't want to work with them in any other capacity. Besides doctors, there were like an odd number of Jewish physicians. To be fair, back then, being a physician was not exactly the skilled like, I've listened to a few episodes of Sawbones, and I couldn't be an Elizabethan medieval physician. Oh, yeah. Between 2000 and 2500, Jewish people were still residing in England at the time of the decree, but that's the estimate based on records and poll taxes and things like that. And the population of England at the time was like 6 million. Not a ton of people. Now, if you read accounts at the time, it's like 16 to 17,000 people were driven out of England. And as far as we can tell from, like I said, records and also some other accounts at the time, it wasn't this mass flood of people leaving England. There wasn't any sort of big cry in the country to, like, get rid of them. Let me guess. 
Edward wanted their stuff. Well, yes, but also the people who were funding Edward at the time, mm -hmm. you know, the lords and things were like, you know what? They're really putting a dent into our ability to take money from people. How much you want to bet a lot of those lords uh, borrowed a bunch of money and were like, hey, you know who you should expel from the country? The people I owe money to. Probably. I mean, honestly. Like, so it was a lot of that. He did benefit from confiscating their lands and any possessions that were left behind. Uh, yeah, it's always... You look at the history of uh, Jewish oppression in Europe. You see a lot of people accusing the Jews of being greedy and then stealing all their things. Yeah, that's generally how it goes. Officially, they weren't allowed back in, I think, until Cromwell. Well, well after Shakespeare died. But what you had at Shakespeare's time was this lingering effect of the Spanish Inquisition. In theory, there were no Jews left in Spain at the time of the Inquisition because they had converted all the Jews or driven them out. But there was this fear of like, but what if they're not actually Christian? What if they're still Jewish? How do we know? You can't win. We should probably torture them. Oh, jeez. There is a point in the book where I do tentatively disagree with Shapiro because obviously I haven't done as much research as him, but he argues that the Inquisition wasn't necessarily about persecuting the Jews because in theory there weren't any Jews. But for me, I'm like, yeah, but the persecution occurred because of essentially Jewish behavior. They weren't acting Christian enough, which the implication being they were acting too Jewish. Yeah, I mean, it, it was never irrational. It was always, hmm, I'm feeling paranoid and I'm kind of dumb. Let's persecute. And so you had this kind of mass immigration of Jews or recently converted Jews across Europe. And those fears came with them, of course, because... Because people were paranoid. A lot of the tropes we believe today about, like, you know, how, to, like, the big nose and the physical attributes mm -hmm. weren't as prevalent at the time, actually, because there was this fear of, like, but you don't know. It turns out Jews look just like Christians, you guys. So how do we know who's a Jew and who's a Christian? That is uh, interesting that they hadn't had all these tropes because... They had had them, but they were fading from oh, okay, popularity, belief, I guess. So, like, all of the ways uh, they've been persecuting the Jews uh, and forced the Jews to blend in. And once the Jews were blending in, they were like, guys, how are we going to persecute them? They're blending in. Yeah, and in fact, there were some stories that Shapiro told of English travelers writing family or whatever and being like, I was mistaken for a Jew. How do we know, guys? What I love, what, 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 when I say what I love, it's what I hate. What I love about this is none of them thought, hey, what if the Jews are just people? Yeah, right. Never occurred? No. There's this misconception that there weren't any Jews in England uh, when Shakespeare was writing, which like legally, technically there weren't. There weren't any allowed to be in England, but it's hard to make that law stick. And also, uh, you know, the people that were there, there was a lot of, like, <laughs> Spanish or Portuguese immigrants who were converted. But you had Henry VIII having Jewish musicians. Elizabeth's physician, who notably was executed for trying to poison her, but he was Jewish. 
Most of the records, again, indicate that they were Portuguese or Spanish converts. Not to say, like, that, you know, like, oh, but they were probably secretly... Like, that was their faith system. You know, like, you don't just drop everything you believe because nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think there was also writings and rumors at the time that they were still secretly practicing. At the time, that was probably based out of fear, but I think it's not out of the realm of possibility that they were, I mean, the Catholics were still secretly Catholic. There was a lot of secret religion going on in the Elizabethan period. Well, yeah, because if the Spanish Inquisition is persecuting your people, it makes a lot of sense to move to England and be like, no, we just act different from you because we're Spanish. <laughs> yes, that's why. And they'd be like, oh. On top of the immigration, you also had kind of this growing global marketplace. Merchants throughout Europe were Jewish. So you had this growing familiarity with Jewish people. Yeah, you know, you get back from the marketplace and be like, oh, you know, I met a Jew and he didn't have scales. Wait, you're not pure evil? So because of these factors, we saw the Elizabethan period being kind of a transition period from the medieval beliefs of the Jews, hook noses, pure evil. Some of these continue through, but through to the Reformation, where they are eventually allowed back into England. But what one thing Shapiro talks about at length, which I found very interesting, is that, you know, you had this crisis of faith happening in England you had the break from the Catholic Church and then now we're Catholic again maybe we're Protestant I don't really know Henry can't decide depends on the wife Edward's Protestant Mary's Catholic Elizabeth is Protestant holy moly you guys and so there was this shift in England where they're trying to figure out what did it mean to be English and that's something hard to pin down like what does it mean to be English but it was kind of like but we're not Jewish we know that. Oh, no. You see, there's things like, you're, you're hopeful, like, well, the, the lack of religious uniformity leads, leads, creates a lot of room for pluralism. And then you learn that, no, people are still jerks. Well, I mean, from the other history we've learned about the time period, no, there wasn't a plurality. You, you were either Protestant or you were Catholic. Well, at least... Uh, you know, the infighting between Protestants and Catholics meant that there was less of a focus on attacking the Jews. So anyway, that's kind of our background. And now we're going to get into the craziness. Oh no. We're going to start with some of the most lighthearted and get darker from there. Ending with ritual murder. Oh no. Yeah. As we talked about the physical attributes, the hooked noses, that, that kind of thing, you know, because people were actually meeting Jewish people and were like, they have normal noses. How do I know who's Jewish? So now we had to find new things that we could pin on them. One was that they smelled and had darker skin, largely tied to diet. The Elizabethans were real believers and what you ate determined what kind of person you were. You are what you eat. Yes. They like literally were like, that's what, what it is. Okay. And so we can tell that they're not good because they eat poorly, which makes them smell. And have darker skin. Which is funny, because nowadays everyone hears about how Elizabeth bathed once a year. You could, like, catch a whiff of yourself and be like, oh, I was around a Jewish person. It was stinky. Oh, Everybody man. was stinky. No, We're this, all stinky. This wasn't me. This was, this was the Jewish person. That's weird, because, like, every time you lift your arms, it smells more. Nope, that was the Jewish people. The diet also 
like I said, not just the smell, but it explained their skin color and their unsavory behavior. You know, if only they ate better. Like, I don't know. I've never looked into the Elizabethan diet. I imagine it was terrible. Now, there was also a belief that it was dangerous to let a Jewish woman nurse a Christian child. Because the Jewishness would be passed through the breast milk. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, jeez. Yeah, because, you know, that's how that works. And then, speaking of breast milk, Jewish men were believed to be able to breastfeed. Um, okay. They also menstruated, apparently. Honestly, those ones are obviously insane. But the idea of feminizing Jewish men... Uh, unlike a big, strong, strapping Christian man, is still a stereotype that people use today. So just the fact that it existed in a different way, slightly more in- insane, isn't terribly surprising because they didn't have biology back then. One kind of phenomenon that was uh, interesting is that really you don't hear much about Jewish women, but Jewish men are very feminized. So, like, Jewish men have both male and female characteristics, which some people argued was, like, women were cursed with periods because Eve ate the apple, and Jewish people clearly didn't believe Jesus, so now Jewish men are, like, the new Eves. I don't know. None of it makes any sense. So they had weird theological reasons for their made-up nonsense. Yes. Which is, you know, that's how racists do. Shapiro says the fact that Jewish men were represented as endowed with male and female traits goes a long way toward explaining why representations of Jewish men almost entirely displaced those of Jewish women at this time. I don't know, like, they were just like, Jewish women are just there and pass on their Jewishness through their breast milk, but it's the men that are the sneaky sneaky. When did racists not focus on the genitals of the people they were oppressing? What's particularly interesting about it in this context is that really, because of circumcision, because, you know, Christian men weren't circumcised. Oh, yeah. So it was the genitals that determined whether or not you were Jewish. Now, obviously, if you had been converted, you would be circumcised. So again, we get into the fear of like, but how do we know? But, like, there's a story of a traveler in England who was like, I was mistaken as a Jew. I even had to prove I was uncircumcised. Which I was like, that's awkward, Doodle. <laughs> it's still weird because if if uh, they believed that Jewish men had both genitalia. It wasn't both genitalia. They just bled. Jewish men also bled all the time. It wasn't like a monthly thing for them. You'd um, think they wouldn't have such dark skin from all the blood loss. <laughs> well, see, they would uh, replenish that lost blood with ritual murder. Oh, of course. Obviously. There are some kind of just weird ones. I mean, all of them are weird, but there's some that I'm just like, what? They believed that Jews had the ability to speak all languages, which would allow them to assimilate quickly to any country. I mean, that's a pretty sweet superpower. I'd convert for that. <laughs> there was also a <laughs> This is one of my favorites. There was also a belief that Scottish people were descended from Jews, which is why... Um, they were tight-fisted and didn't like pork. What? (laughs) I do love that England will never 
lose the chance to take a, a shot at the Scottish. Shapiro writes, More than one 17th century English writer suggested that the Scots had Jewish blood and characteristics, presumably because the Jews must have fled there rather than remaining in England following their banishment in 1290. Why else, James Howell wondered, were the Scots so tight-fisted and what else could explain their distaste for blood pudding? I mean, blood pudding is gross. But if the Jews were constantly losing blood, why wouldn't they want blood pudding? None of it makes any sense. But what I like is that talking back to that figuring out what is English, they're like, we're not Jewish and we're not Scotsmen. <laughs> and like, obviously, a lot of this is all horrible and harmful. But like, you gotta laugh because it's so stupid or else you're just gonna spend your whole day uh, unbelievably sad. Well, and Shapiro um, talks about, as he was researching the book, reading the writings of just some of the most prominent minds of the time, also believing that like Jewish men menstruated and could speak all the languages. I was like, really, guys? I, I, I do like the idea that because of the persecution, they were limited in the number of the number of ways they could interact with the European economy. They probably did speak a lot of languages, and it tells you a lot about the time that the English were like, "Whoa, whoa! They speak more than English and French." It's sorcery. Well, I think also you had with it that fear that they can assimilate quickly. How do we know if they're Jewish? <laughs> That fear keeps coming up again and it, again it does. and again forever because you you see it at every era in history. As you just mentioned, usury was a main way that they were able to contribute to the economy. Not the only way, by any means. It's not like every Jewish person in Europe was a lender. That would be ridiculous. But that is what they became known for. However, unfortunately, as persists today, they're blamed for a lot of economic crimes. Clipping coins, making fake coins, obviously lending with outrageous rates. One thing that was interesting was that usury laws were actually changing around Shakespeare's time or just before. Mm -hmm. So that actually you could lend. It was it was kind of like, oh, you you can lend. You just can't charge more than like i think it was like a 10 percent interest rate and like you know the myth at the time was that jewish user would charge like 90 percent interest so there was also this idea of like yeah i'm lending with interest but i'm not as bad as they are so if we look at the hebrew word for usury mm -hmm. it means to bite if that translation came through to become a part of the kind of fabric of our belief system about jewish people it can help explain all the myths of cannibalism what not totally explain it but you have this hebrew word which is either you know to lend money with interest or to bite mm -hmm. so they were biting oh, okay and so now we're getting into the, the ritual murder Oh, God. Which gets ridiculous. Now, there was this, like, super weird fear that they were, like, seducing and converting people left and right. But also that they would, like, convert you and circumcise you and then murder you. Oh, so that you couldn't get into heaven. I don't know. Probably. What's, what's stupid about all, all of this, besides everything, is just that Jews don't convert people. 
They don't try to. It's not an evangelical religion. And uh, they also don't believe in heaven or hell, not in the way that uh, Christians do by any means. So the idea that they would try to cheat you out of heaven, which they didn't believe in, by tricking you into hell, which they didn't believe in, is so stupid. But, you know, these Christians didn't know that Jewish men just had functioning penises. The, the need for blood um, has a couple different explanations. One, they need to replenish all that blood they were losing through their menstruation. Mm-hmm. Like you do. I know once a month I need to go feed on some blood. Also, they needed to have the blood of a Christian handy in case they were dying and needed to like save themselves real quick. Because apparently they could like bless themselves with the Christian blood, and God would be like, "Oh, you cool? Not you just murdered someone and you carried their blood around in case you needed it." Oh, you cool, you Christian. I think that the really telling thing is that the Christians apparently thought the Jews believed in Jesus, but just didn't follow him. Yes. Well, I think it was more of a, like, just in case. No, I think it's the other way. Some of it was, oh, they secretly believed in Jesus. And some of it was like, but what if I'm gonna, I'm gonna cover all my bases at the last second? Because what if Jesus is real and I don't get into heaven? Which is, which is funny to me a little bit, because when you look at, like, the early Christianization of Europe, there's a lot of pagans who are like, well, I mean, when I get close to the end, I'm just gonna do all of them sure i'm getting in somewhere yeah and so they were believed to need that blood but also apparently they just like enjoyed killing people now one of the personally for me most vicious rumors were was that jewish people would kidnap and kill children again for needing the blood the theory is now that children that were either being abandoned or killed by their parents because you had changelings at the time which again was another one that were like maybe we were finding excuses to leave babies in woods was just being blamed on the jews yeah it's horrifying but not surprising yeah and then there was also like that fear and then they would circumcise you before they killed you and apparently a jewish scholar refuted this by saying like but then it would be violence against a jewish person (laughs) which i thought was funny I i i like that though it's like the stupidest part of this is that if we circumcised you, we wouldn't be killing a goy anymore. <laughs> for just murder for funsies, if they were murdering an adult not for need of blood, apparently one of their favorite methods was poison. This may have come about because they were pretty skilled physicians, apparently. Queen Elizabeth's physician was Jewish. With the poisoning, what was notable about Queen Elizabeth's physician being Jewish is that he was tried for attempting to poison the queen. That doesn't surprise me, because typically any time a Jew reached a high level of a European court, someone accused them of something. Yeah, so I I believe largely it's assumed that it was all made up. Shapiro provides a good kind of overview quote of all of this. Even when taken independently, the various parts of this, quote, Jewish crime, especially child abduction, circumcision, and cannibalism, appear to have touched deeply on fears that no doubt stretch across cultures, but seem to have had a special urgency in early modern England. 
Each of these parts of the larger crime also affects an irreversible transformation of identity, familial, sexual, religious, and physical. It's not hard to imagine then why these various concerns should have cohered into a powerful and satisfying narrative, one with vast explanatory force and one that could explain both conscious and barely understood fears experienced by early modern English men and women. I think if you can tie up all of your fears and pin them to one scapegoat, it's not surprising people did that. Shapiro and his book, I highly recommend it if this is a topic that interests you. He goes much more into detail about the influence it had on Merchant of Venice and where we can see these threads coming through the pound of flesh and his daughter rebelling against Judith. Like she doesn't want to be Jewish. She doesn't want to be what it have anything to do with it. And I think a lot of times now we're like, it's just for love. But like, she is also like, it's terrible and I hate it. Yeah. I'm not Jewish. I'm nice. And then you have this underlying belief in forced circumcision and murder and cannibalism, him demanding a pound of flesh. If that's your conception of a people, then you can't conceive of someone being both moral and part of that community. So, of course, Shylock's daughter doesn't want to be Jewish in the English imagination because they can't think of being good being able to mesh with the Jewish identity. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think that modern times we read Shylock's arguments and are like, oh, this poor guy. But they just saw deceitfulness and cruelty because Christians p- pinned all of their cruelty, their own cruelty, on the Jewish community to justify it and to deflect. Yeah. And as I talked about at the beginning, you have the, if you trick us, do we not bleed? You have Shylock saying, oh, now you want for money from me? You just, like, insulted me and spit on me last week. But, like, now you want money? Uh, to Antonio, which, when we read it with our modern sensibilities, it kind of makes us feel like, I mean, yeah, he's not a nice guy, but he's been so beat down by the system that's constantly working against him. Whereas I I don't think that's how an Elizabethan audience would have seen it. Now, of course, we can never get in Shakespeare's head. We're never going to know for sure what he knew, what he thought, what he was trying to say with those lines. But I think that it's important for us as audience members, as readers, to look at Shakespeare's work in context but still appreciating where that depth is and grappling with the fact that he might not have intended that depth to be there except in the sense of I'm trying to write a good part, not I'm trying to provide commentary on the plight of the Jewish people. His desire to write good parts probably is the only reason why that play is ever put on today because we read it and we see a person and you know whatever intent he had most people today can only contextualize it as look at the plight of the jewish people back then this is terrible and we empathize with shylock Mm -hmm. but we're not supposed to yeah we're not supposed to i think we have to understand that because i think it's easy for us to ignore a lot of 
the anti-Semitism of the play because of that one speech or those couple moments. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to go to ripegoodscholar.com EP25 for even more information on Jews in Elizabethan England. The show notes for every episode are filled with additional resources and facts that can help you further explore this topic. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It helps others find our podcast so our community of scholars can grow. Also, make sure you are on our mailing list to receive a free digital download and be kept up to date on everything going on over at Ripe Good Scholar. Follow us over on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Ripe Good Scholar to keep the Shakespeare fun going all day, every day. That's all for now. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. As always, the deepest dives and best discussions are happening after the show at ripegoodscholar.com. Join us over there to lend your perspective and engage with fellow scholars. We would love to hear from you. That's all for today. And remember, our courts shall be a little academe, still and contemplative in living arts.